life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident, rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. Did you know our sponsor and associated nonprofit, I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, is on social media? You can find out more about I See That's initiatives, learn more about the science behind spinal cord injuries, and build community with others in the spinal cord injury space by following I See That on Instagram at I See That Nonprofit. That's spelled I C T H A T Nonprofit. And on Facebook at the URL www.facebook.com backslash ic dot that dot org. Links to those platforms will be in the show notes. As we follow the blink of an eye story with the unedited Archer blogs written bedside in real time, I noticed in my own archival look back while producing this podcast that around 30 days or so in the intensive care unit on our spinal cord injury journey, that I began writing my updates to family and friends in larger chunks, covering a few days at a time, rather than the minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour writings in seasons one and two, while in the trauma ICU. It's an interesting observation about trauma, the experience of trauma, and how the brain adapts, and how in the initial hours, days, and first weeks, the mind and the body are alternating between numbness and a hyper-alert state, where one minute of a day seems to expand to fill a whole day. And then, as time moves on, even when the crisis or tragedy has not changed, we adapt. And it's interesting to me that around the 30-day or so mark, while we're still on hyper-alert, we begin to thaw a bit from the shock, if we're lucky which allows us to think more expansively again and pay attention to things other than the moment-by-moment life-or-death decisions. And we begin to make space because we have new or renewed capacity to consider other aspects of our lives. I find this curious and noteworthy on our trauma journeys. Maybe you do too. So for the rest of Season 3, 
while we are at the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. The Blink of an Eye episodes will follow the written in real-time blog writings, which cover multiple days on the journey. They will also include multiple voices and interviews. Our episodes will be longer in length than the 60-minute episodes you were used to in Season 2. You may wish to set aside a longer chunk of listening time to get the whole of it. As always, I hope the Blink of an Eye story is helping you with your healing as much as it is helping me to share it with you. We are all in this life together. Now, for today's episode. In our last episode, Archer finally went into surgery for his sinuses, but it didn't go off without a hitch as I sat in the waiting area with my friend Didi, Provosti Jasmine, the two of us intensely praying the rosary as the surgeons performed a delicate procedure to clean out Archer's sinus cavity. Now, I've prayed the rosary as a child, and I had come back to praying the rosary as an adult, in large part because of the influence of the Order of Malta, a lay group of Catholics devoted to assisting the sick and dying, and their devotion to Mary, the Mother of God, and to organizing annual pilgrimage trips to Lourdes, France, a place of healing that I wish every person on earth could go to. The truth is, though, that I had never pulled out a rosary unless I was with a bunch of Catholics in a Catholic place or in private. And I had never prayed so hard for anything in my life. Yet there we were in Piedmont Hospital in a very secular and public space, praying intensely out loud the rosary for Archer. As I look back, I realize my life was changing in many ways. Back in that hospital waiting area, another realization I began to see was that while I was praying to God in an intimate prayer for a successful surgery, the actual medical issue was not so much the delicate surgery, but whether Archer had the capacity to make it through the surgery with his lungs as compromised as they were and his oxygen desaturation rates as low as 70. These were all secondary complications from what is called a complete spinal cord injury, which means the spinal cord was severed and thus the vagal nerves, which is the main nerve in our central nervous system, was not able to lift and move the diaphragm, which facilitates the lungs to move to be able to breathe. And this was compounded and made precariously worse because of another tertiary complication, the buildup of infection, bacteria, gunk, and that thick, bloody mucus not only was filling Archer's lungs, but it had backed up, moving close to his brain, as he had no ability to move or cough or swallow 
or do anything on his own to get rid of the gunk. I didn't fully understand that then. And I don't know if it's better to fully understand a situation at the time or not. I can understand now how a doctor would say there is not much that can be done. But back then, I thought it better to just pray and encourage Archer. So I just prayed. I had some holy water I dabbed on Archer's lips and underneath his hospital gown onto his heart. Holy water that came from Lord's France. I had been forever influenced by my trips to Lord's, a place where people from all over the world travel for healing, for spiritual healing. Indeed, where people in the process of dying and with ailments and maladies that have them deformed and crippled mentally or physically go, or they are taken there for strength as they are bathed or they just drink just a sip from the underground healing waters. I know for some this little ritual may have seemed silly or ridiculous, but we all have rituals we do for protection. And I believe God was going to protect Archer. It comforted me, and I believed in this water that remained miraculously purified even after countless diseased people had bathed in it. We lovingly refer to the sick and dying pilgrims who go to Lourdes as malads. I had come to realize over the years that as healthy as I was, I too was a malad. And I went to Lourdes seeking healing as well. Don't we all have something we need to heal in our lives, in our thoughts or actions? Well, I have witnessed miracles at Lourdes, true miracles of others being healed. There was a woman from England, crippled in a wheelchair for years, who got up and walked. There was another woman with many cancerous tumors, whose tumors were gone at the next x-ray when she arrived back in the States. Miracles, you know? Maybe you have seen miracles, too. There are legions of stories at Lourdes that modern medicine cannot explain. I have also witnessed something equally powerful, perhaps even more powerful, the healing transformation that comes from a strengthened heart, whether physically ill or depressed, or mentally cross. So many malads experience the joy and ease of a heart ablaze with love. And they are not by any means all Christian. They are of many faiths, and some come with no faith at all, and leave feeling renewed in a completely new way. It's a powerful place. I wanted to go often to Lourdes every few years to be infused by that experience of a heart 
strengthened by love and faith for myself. Yes, I had come to be a believer. And I had come to love the holy water as a reminder. If you don't know about Lourdes, France, it is the place where the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus who died over 2,000 years ago, shortly died after Christ died. She appeared in the 1850s to a young, poor, sickly girl whose name was Bernadette as she was out gathering sticks in the woods and mud for a fire. You might want to look up the story or watch the movie The Song of Bernadette. It's beautiful. It involves Napoleon Bonaparte III's wife and her governess of her two-year-old, the Prince Imperial, who had contracted tuberculosis whom the doctors at the time were not able to treat. The governess risked traveling to this poor, desolate place of freezing cold springs. It had been barricaded off and forbidden by the government, where trespassers and even those who prayed, even behind the barriers, were prosecuted. The governess ignored the barricades and the legal threats. She knelt in prayer, pleading to the Virgin Mary for intercession and aid for the child's recovery. She was charged, and she said she wanted to face legal judgment, so long as she could bring the holy waters to the Empress to give to her baby prince. The young boy was cured by the miraculous spring waters, and this subsequently lifted the bands. The story is so moving. I hope you go if you haven't already. Before one of my trips in particular, it was 2008, I think, I decided to tell some business friends in Baltimore that I was going, and I put out to them that if they had any intentions they wanted me to take to the Blessed Mary, that I would. They were not Catholic, but it didn't matter to me, because I know it doesn't matter to God. He hears us all. And so does Mary. Well, the ritual is to place any intentions on a piece of paper in the large stone cave grotto where Mother Mary had appeared to little Bernadette and to light candles and to process and to sing and to pray for those intentions. The grotto is the location of the apparitions where Mary spoke to the little girl Bernadette and told her to dig in the dirt in the woods where Bernadette discovered the underground springs. Mary instructed all of us to bathe, to pray, and to forgive. Word got out and thousands of people began processing for miracles. Little Bernadette was subsequently ridiculed by the local community and police who tried to have the quiet, sick little girl committed as dangerous to the public. If you go to Lourdes, you can feel the holiness of this place where Mary appeared and had conversations with this uneducated, desperately poor, malnourished, asthmatic, 
little 14-year-old girl who also had tuberculosis. Mary promised Bernadette happiness, not in this life, but in the other. I love having conversations with God. Do you? It's so personal to pray to God, the divine, as a person and a Holy Spirit who also sent a son to live on earth as a person so that we would know that God understands our human plight. That's the really personal part. And that's the part I love so much. And praying to Mary as an intercessor for us to God gives me such comfort because she is the mother of God's son. I love that too. Prayer is so very personal. I know that many do not understand the power of believing and the power of these prayer rituals, and that's okay, but I do. Do you? Well, you don't have to as a listener to the Blink of an Eye story, but let me tell you, these prayers in our times of life and death and pain and suffering with Archer help me know I was never alone. Prayer gave me the feeling that we would be given what we needed, whatever that was, and God would be with us through it all. Well, on this day in the story, I had some of that Lord's holy water with me in a tiny plastic bottle in my pocket given to me by a friend back in Baltimore, Kathy Armstrong. I will start the story today with an excerpt from an interview I had with Kathy. So settle in, take a deep breath, and imagine how joyous and uplifted you feel when you allow yourself to believe in what is possible despite misery and trying circumstances around you. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 7, Patience, Jedi Master. Here we go. sick about it and you were up to your eyeballs and things so all we could say is oh my gosh our prayers are with you what can we do that's all when I received texts from friends that said you know my prayers are with you that was doing the biggest thing anybody could have done for us and for me so thank you for that I mean well you're welcome I just kept thinking you know I wish there was something we could do and there, there's really nothing we can do but pray. You know, there's just not. We are mothers, Louise, and we are wired to fix things for our kids. Yes, we you are. Know, we, we are wired we are. We to protect are. them. And, and I don't know how to fix this. Mm -hmm. So, but what I do know is that I had to do something, even if it was a, a ridiculous thing. And I remember that years earlier, we went to Lourdes, 
you brought me back. It was funny because we we were at a business meeting and we went we walked back to the parking lot together and you said, I have something for you, Kath. And I got in your car and we sat down and you had this bag with two bottles of holy water from Lourdes, but you gave me two bottles and I put one in my desk drawer at work and I had the other one at home in my kitchen cabinet because I wasn't quite sure what to do with them. But I knew when the right time came, I would, uh, I would want those bottles of holy water. And I thought, okay, Louise gave me holy water. I'm going to give that to my good friend who really needs some help right now. So I would go give them away. And then what happened was I had no more holy water. So I went back to you and I was embarrassed and said, Louise, I have used all the holy water you gave me and, and I don't even have any, I gave it away, but I'm thinking that was the right thing to do because I thought someone needed it. Oh so, my gosh, Kathy, I do remember so you, this. I know. So I said, if you, do you by any chance have any more bottles? And you said, sure. So you gave me, I think one more bottle and that was then in my desk drawer. So now here I am years later, I'm in Phoenix and uh, thinking, what can I do? And I thought, oh my gosh, Louise needs her holy water back. She needs this. Archer needs this. Wow. So, and I wasn't there. So I wrote, and I wanted you to have it right away. And I, I think at that point you were already in Atlanta. I'm, I'm not even sure where you were, but, but I, I know I could not be there to give it to you. So I went to my staff and I said, would you please go in my desk drawer and there's a bottle of holy water in there and I'm going to email you a letter from Louise. And they, I guess they didn't know how to send it. So they put it in a Kleenex box. I just think that the, the world surrounded you. And I hope you know that. It wasn't like me sending the holy water in the Kleenex box. It was that we were all surrounding you guys. We were surrounded full circle. I felt it, and I love the gift of faith. It's a gift. And yes, all kinds of crazy good things can come. You just never know, do you? We are always given what we need when we ask. We are in God's time. And it's not the universe that gives it to us. It's not magic. It's your intention asking God personally, a personal God who created the universe. We get what we need when we are in this personal relationship with God, in alignment with God. And the universe dances because we are then all expressions of God's majestic love and creativity, and compassion. That's how I see it. It keeps it very personal that way. Well, Archer's recovery from the surgery was not happening without a hitch. There were more ups and downs, and some surprise visits. September 13, 2015, day 40, back at the Shepherd Center from Piedmont Hospital. 
Archer is very watchful of all of his settings. Indeed, upon returning from each of his now six major surgeries, wheeled in by a different crew of medical technicians, whether in Atlantic City or Atlanta, he always makes facial expressions for me, sometimes very feeble, to make sure they place his bed where he can see the monitor screens and a clock at all times. He's pretty amazing that way. He's precise and alert and good with numbers. I have no doubt he will be a good advocate for his own health. He already is. That is all good. And the stories I could tell you over these 40 days when he noticed something related to his numbers before anyone else did, including me. Well, I'll save that for later. But this weekend in the Shepherd ICU, he has been glancing up at the monitor over his right shoulder to see where his oxygen saturation rate is. We are so grateful that his oxygen saturation shortly after arriving at Shepherd was at 98 to 100 percent on his own. On his own, that progress is amazing. Thank you, prayer warriors, for breathing and praying to God for ease, as it has surely been part of Archer's body healing. And thank you to amazing EMT workers who traveled with us in the airplane and took such good care of Archer. But as you know from the incidents that started mid last week, those saturation percentages can slide backwards because of all the mucus buildup in his lungs that he's just not able to cough up like you or I. So I've noticed that the magic number for Archer's watchful eye is 95%. Rather than waiting until, say, 92% when the staff will come in as they monitor his screens at a desk outside as well, he notices first and will click for me or sip and puff for a nurse so that he stays ahead of emergencies. Which in this latest instance means I really can't breathe. And it's a horrible situation. He's so weak from the many suctionings that began Friday night. His weakness was compounded after surgery by his not having had any nourishment for almost 24 hours since they stopped the feeding tube feedings at midnight prior to surgery, even with a surgery scheduled for early evening. I'm really not sure why they have to do it that way. It really is a long time. And if you think about it, and if you have ever had surgery, you hope you are scheduled first thing in the morning or late morning and definitely by noon because you feel faint. Well, they didn't schedule Archer until 6 p.m. and by the time we made it back from his room Friday night, it was 10.30 p.m., 11 p.m., almost 24 hours without any food or water. 
But the real reason he is feeling so weak is that the suctions of the last 48 hours have raised the bar on torture for him. The mucus is so thick they use bicarbonate rather than saline injected into his trach. It's not painful, it's just more intense. And not just sometimes, but always. And now there is a second respiratory therapist involved to not only hold the large bag, which is a thick but soft large plastic bulb that takes two hands to hold, that bulges with air upon letting off hand pressure and then exhales air into Archer's system at the same rhythm as the breathing he is doing after the deep suction tube is withdrawn from his trach to quickly give him air while he's gagging to get the rest of the gunk out. Each therapist press on the bulging bag sounds like a loud gust of wind. But the same therapist is also busy firmly but gently rubbing and thumping on Archer's lower abdomen to further break up the thick mucus plugs trapped in his lungs. While the other therapist skillfully and sometimes frenetically force threads the 12 inches of plastic tubing down Archer's esophagus into his lungs with the hope that Archer, in concert with the team and the devices, will be able to gag and pull up enough of the gunk to allow him to breathe. These rounds require not just one or two go-downs, where the gagging and the strain is tremendous, but five or six. That's five or six times that tube is threaded down his windpipe. Each time, Archer is exhausted. And the gunk was still dark brown, bloody, and dark, ugly yellow, even today. Lord only knows what the insides of his sinus cavities must have looked like. Even so, the good news is that Archer reported last night to the nurse who asked him what his pain level was in his nose and sinuses, that he was a two. A two out of ten. Yes, I was so relieved. I was also so naive. I smiled and said to Arch, that is so good, Arch. We'll take that. We can live with that number, right? He looked at me with very sad, weak eyes and mouthed, shoulders six. Oh, it took my breath away. Oh my gosh, this pain, how will we manage it? I looked at him and could only say, I'm so sorry, my darling. Stay strong. 
feel the prayers. I love you. He closed his eyes and weakly mouthed. I love you too. So he has really needed your prayers for ease of breath so very much. And those prayers matter. He could have given up, but he hasn't. It has crossed my mind, though, on more than one occasion, how easy it would be to give up. I think of the times I may have wanted to give up or was tempted to not do something that it would have been better had I. I bet there might be a time or two when you may have wanted to give up at something that was hard too, but you knew you should do it because it was good for you or good for someone else like avoiding sugar or not having a second coffee or holding back on a sharp judgment or harsh word. Or maybe it's something at work or school that you need to complete and just can't get around to it. Or maybe it's a conversation you need to have even though you know it will be hard. Don't give up. Stay strong in your conviction. Stay steadfast. You can do it. That's what I've said to Archer. Please send that feeling you have when you stay steadfast and you don't give up. And you send it to Archer. You know the feeling. The one where your body literally feels better, cleaner, and thus your heart feels lighter, more joyful, or where you feel a sense of accomplishment or well-being, or relief, and your heart is uplifted. It's that feeling. Please send that feeling to Archer right now in a little prayer. I think back on Friday night, Archer's seventh surgical procedure in 38 days. It's really unbelievable to think back on all that he has been through and I believe we probably have some bumps ahead we don't even know about but one day at a time I'll tell you about the surgery as I know you had your clock set to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to pray and I thank you for that 20 minutes before surgery start time we were expertly wheeled at breakneck speed. Oh my Lord, I can't even believe I just used that expression, but it's true. We were flying down the hallway through the tunnel that connects Shepherd Center to Piedmont Hospital. And we arrived at the receiving area with enough papers and different dossiers that reminded me of the many documents I've seen presented to various officials upon crossing borders of countries. There was a wait and a bit of a flurry. Thus we passed from Shepherd Country to Piedmont Country with the literal formal hand exchange of two document folders neatly prepared. One with Archer's medical information 
the other with the transfer papers. There was a definite formality. It was interesting. Archer was whisked away not five minutes thereafter into the surgery room, allowing just enough time for the anesthesiologists to give me their spiel and giving me just enough time to sign all the consents and to take our surgeon's hands in mine, kiss them, and look him in the eyes, thanking him for taking good care of our lion-hearted son and for allowing the angels to guide his skillful hands. I was then escorted into the family waiting room to wait. One of my college friends living in Atlanta was there waiting for me. Isn't that kind? It was so kind. I pulled out my rosary and she pulled out hers. She laughed and said, Louise, I had to go locate this thing, which I knew I had, but I had no idea where. It's really old. It was my grandmother's. I kind of like it, though. I'm not big on praying. Haven't done it in a long time. But I'm going to do it for you. I'm feeling differently about prayer now. I was so very moved. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, it was a beautiful rosary with glass cut beads. I pulled out my little pink card I carry with me that reminds me of the order of the mysteries of the rosary and which ones to pray on which days. It's kind of nice as it varies the days and makes me feel very close to Jesus and his life. I don't think it's necessary to pray the mysteries when reciting the rosary. Lord only knows I mostly do not, but it is good and contemplative for me when I do. Okay, Friday, the sorrowful mysteries. Didi and I began as we whispered together and pondered in our hearts with each of the five decades, starting with the first the agony in the garden for true repentance. We were in solidarity, sitting in the two chairs in a corner of the room, mostly emptied now. When we got to the third decade and the mystery was the crowning of thorns for moral courage, we both looked at each other and she said, this one is for Archer. And we said the Hail Marys our fathers, glory be, and the hail holy queen prayers with all our hearts. And we got to the fourth decade, the carrying of the cross for patience. And she said to me, this one is for us. Yes, I nodded. This one is for us. As we closed our eyes, and began our quiet prayer litany. As I heard her words with mine, I could really feel the love. We were about finished with the whole rosary, still whispering the prayers together as we sat catty-corner to each other with our eyes closed in contemplation when the waiting room lady came and standing over me asked, Are you Mrs. Sampt? 
I said, yes, with a bit of a start. She continued, I just want to tell you, ma'am, that surgery hasn't posted yet. I asked, what does that mean that surgery hasn't posted yet? It was 6.30 p.m. Why had it not started? I knew it wasn't because of waiting on an anesthesiologist team because I met them both. And I knew it wasn't because of waiting on a nurse because I met her too. And I watched her wheel Archer away. And I knew it wasn't because of waiting on the surgeon because I kissed his hands and watched him duck into the surgery bay where Archer was going. What does that mean? And she said, Oh, wheel, you know, it can mean they were having a few little issues with getting the breathing right with the anesthesiology and all. There it was. Oh, Lord, please help Archer. Just what we had been concerned about. We went back to our rosary with fervor. It's amazingly comforting. She came back shortly thereafter and told us surgery had posted about 6.50 p.m. I sent you a text and post to let you know. We are just so very, very grateful for your prayers. I knew that he was being held in the safety net of your prayers since 5 p.m. while Archer needed them. We all needed them. We finished one rosary and began another. The words of prayers may not seem to matter so much, but the prayers that are so ancient and enduring, they're ancient and enduring for a reason. I imagine God doesn't mind, though, whatever the words of your prayers are. I imagine he is happy to have a conversation with us. Isn't that crazy to think that God is happy that we have a conversation with him? But I believe that is right. I do. He's so loving and so wanting us to rely on him and be with him. Isn't that what it's like for us as mothers and fathers? I know that's what it's like for you. We just want that connection with our children, no matter how old, no matter how far away. No matter what has happened between us, all the good and all the bad. God will accept us no matter where we are, no matter what kind of shape we're in. And we just reach out to him. That knowing is just so beautiful to me. That kind of love, it's everything really. Imagine. If each time someone reached out to you with love, trying to connect, and you reached back in some small way, oof. And imagine if each time you reached out to someone you love, especially someone you may have hurt, or they may have hurt you, but you decided to reach out anyway, and imagine if they reached back we would have so much more well-being. Love can restore all. And that kind of love is expansive. There is enough, always enough. 
and it's not just meant for a few. Well, this I've thought about many times over the years as it relates to children. <laughs> I remember when Billy and I had Paula and when she was first born and I would hold her in her first couple days of life outside my womb and just gaze at her, marveling that I had a baby, a beautiful baby girl. And then I remember the day when she, oh, she was about two weeks old, and I fell in love with her deeply. I remember saying to myself, oh my God, I'm falling in love with her. And I remember thinking that I could not love anyone as deeply as I loved her. That little baby lying on the changing table as I kissed her little toes and rubbed her tiny little legs. And she looked at me and smiled. I couldn't believe it. I remember being elated. She smiled at me. I swear she smiled at me. And my heart leapt for joy. That connection was so stunning. I know that's what it's like for God with us. Because whatever we feel that is so good comes from that love God has for us. God really calls us each by name. And there is the potential for great intimacy in that love. I know God is calling Archer by name. I know he is calling all of us. He's calling me, he's calling you. Have you heard God calling you? And there's plenty of love for all of us. I know this in a very humble kind of way. But I know this, as Billy and I were blessed with more children. I remember wondering how there could be enough love for a second child when I felt all my love for one child. And then, when that second child came into our lives, I felt all my love for two children. Oh, I remember so clearly when Pete was born our first son, and I felt this singular, one-to-one, -one, totally merged feeling all over again with this tiny little baby boy. My love expanded because I was now in love with two children, and then I was in love with three children, with Dewey who bears my father's name, my father, with whom I have had such a deep spiritual connection during his life, since his death, when I was so very young. So with Dewey, it was like having a double love. And so love expands. It has no borders. It has this amazing elastic quality Maybe like neuroplasticity, 
where it is always developing and renewing itself. Maybe that is God's love in our bodies. Yeah, that's it. Perhaps a way of thinking about it for Archer. God's love is so expansive, and that love creates new connections, new pathways, new fibers, and it's happening right now for Archer and in his body. And I remember the exact moment of falling in love with Archer, who was almost named Moses, a family name for me that Billy loved, Moses Hawkins, a revolutionary war hero. (laughs) But I had to veto that, literally, as he was coming out of my womb into the world. And Billy was like a spring. When our OB, who delivered all my babies, said, It's another boy. (laughs) And while bouncing up, Billy exclaimed, Moses? And I shook my head in the negative while pushing. And he said, Archer. And I moved my head in the affirmative. And so our third little son was named for Moses' son, Archer Hawkins. And I remember the exact moment of falling in love with Dutch, who is Billy's namesake, a junior. And Semt is a Dutch name, meaning the mustard seed. But at the time when the OB doctor said, it's another boy. (laughs) Since we never found out the sex of the baby in the womb while I was pregnant, We still did not have a name we had settled on for exactly what to call him. So my sister-in-law had the cute idea of just calling him Little Double Dutch until we decided, well, Dutch, it became. Do you recall the births of your children and why you chose their names? Each birth. So miraculous. And each name is so personal. Oh, I digress. But each time I remember the total immersion of falling deeply in love with each of my sons, as if for the first and only and last time, like having blinders on to everything else, all one, all merged, all love. And yet the miracle of it all is that there was always enough love to go around. The new falling in love experience never took away from the other love of the other children. If anything, it expanded it. Human beings, we have incredible capacity to love and to love a lot of people. And so it must be with God since we are made in his image. So every child can be a favorite and should be a favorite because each child is unique and special in his or her individual way. You know, as I think about it, I think that every time I had that indelible, deep, falling in love forever experience with each of my babies, each was around just a week or two of age. So it must be biologically hardwired. I knew it. 
and felt it. I imagine most mothers do. The miracle of that falling in love with your babies. When we are in love and have that feeling surge throughout our bodies and hearts and minds, it's the most natural thing to want to protect them, especially when they are so vulnerable. It's like that now with Archer. Nature has built us this way. I know to care for our young. Isn't God the most creative to have created us like that? It's pretty primitive and pretty enlightened. Oh, I could really go on and on because I have thought about this and marveled at a mother's biological love for her baby for a couple decades now. It's so real and so personal. <laughs> well, that for us as mothers, <laughs> even our breast milk is biologically formulated and just uniquely ours and patented for each of our babies, unique in all the world and ever-changing to meet their daily needs in the development of what the baby needs that very day. Because the bodies are wired to each other with various transmitters. It's true. It's all so amazing. And so I've thought about love these many nights here with Archer. God's love, Mother Mary's love. And so I have this idea that a mother's love and mothers collectively could be wired in such solidarity together for a child that we might move mountains. I believe we are capable. Your love is very real, it's very tangible, it's very powerful and protecting and it's very expansive. It's really all we need. So it was about 8 o'clock p.m. or so when Archer's ENT surgeon came to find me in the now completely empty family waiting area. Everything okay? I asked. Everything okay, he said. I was relieved in a way that only a mother could be. He is okay. Those hours in the waiting room went by tediously as we awaited first the initiating anesthesia to go smoothly, then for the surgery to end. I was so grateful. I found my every free moment was filled with an awareness of gratitude. Archer was still alive. I was grateful for Dee Dee for her bringing her rosary, for her praying with me. And I was thankful for Archer's army storming heaven. In this continued Archer blog, I learned more about the surgery and just how close to severe infection Archer was. 
Thank you, Lord, I said to myself. The surgeon began. Why don't we talk in here? As he motioned to a side room. My heart dropped. Why couldn't he just take me back to see Archer right now? But it was really just his way to talk privately. In a little consult room he led me to, he told me it had all gone well once underway. And he emphasized, your son was really strong. He told me the sinus cavities were full and the color was brown, bloody, and some yellow like pus. He said, we'll culture it. I thanked him and said it really still confounded me how they knew it was a sinus infection when there were no indications of sinus infection. No nasal drip, no headaches, no sinus aches. And he said, but there were indications. His high white count that remained high after treating everything else and his procalcitonin count that was very, very high. Procalcitonin, I asked. That's a new one for me. And he said, it's a test given to assess any indication of sepsis. Sepsis, modern medicine and the granular view and all the specialties it takes is really another amazement to me and another source of gratitude. He said, we monitor for everything. That's why you pay so much. I thanked him and shared with him that I hope he might remember Archer Sempt because God is going to do wondrous things through Archer. As I think now of Archer's ENT surgeon, I realize I meant to tell you about the bedside exploratory scope, another small procedure I had to sign consents for too, that he did through Archer's nose a couple days ago to make sure that they needed to do the surgery as they were ruling out any and all other reasons for Archer's high white blood cell count, which remained at 18 and had only gone down to 16 after major antibiotic treatments. It was still at 12 when we had the surgery. Well, after the scope, he told me, your son's vocal cords are split. Split? Apparently, we have two vocal cords. Yours and my vocal cords are parallel with each other. They need to be to give us voice because they vibrate with each other. Did you ever know that? Archers, unfortunately, are scissored. That's what he said. I asked, why? And he looked right at me and paused. And then he said, I have no explanation. I just wanted you to know what I had found. He told me he could widen them with the scope, but that they would not come together yet. Oh, I said it would be a real loss 
if we didn't hear the timber of Archer's voice again. Not to mention all the different other voices and accents Archer is so good at mimicking, which have left us all rolling in laughter. So please, pray too for Archer's vocal cords to repair. And when you speak, listen to your own voice and notice its fine quality and how unique it is like no other. Your voice is really very unique to you. It really is. It has a quality. It's your signature. God calls us by name and he hears each voice. Each one, each one of a kind in all the world's voice. Please, Lord, restore Archer's audible voice. So this changes things. We've been waiting for the much prayed for and anticipated vent weaning so that Archer can speak again and had accepted that that might mean having to take small steps to learn how to use the air in his trach to activate his voice box for a period of time. But now, we've got a different kind of fish to fry, and it's just a waiting game. Oh, boy, are we ever learning that. Small steps. Patience. Small steps. Nothing can be rushed. The body needs time. God's time. Oh, it's incredibly a daily discipline for me to be patient. Who hasn't heard that? Patience is a virtue. I know. But here, patience, it's a primary way to cope. That is hard when I know Archer has the will, the desire, and your prayers and love. I hear Billy's voice in my ear as he's fond of saying to me when I'm in the serious over-the-top get-it-done mode at home, issuing plays and orders to the kids and everyone else to clean and move and pick up or whatever else it is (laughs) that needs to get done. Or when I'm in creative mode at the office and I'm rattling off to my team my vision and a zillion ideas and all the things that we're going to be doing and what's expected and needed and who needs to do what and what it's going to look like, et cetera, et cetera. And Billy would say to me, in a private moment, patience, Jedi master. (laughs) He was always sparing for when he chose to say that to me. But each time he did, or does, it's always the perfect moment. (laughs) Only he could say that to me. And it always makes me laugh. Well, I'm trying to remember that feeling of laughing about patience to alleviate the weight of all of this now. Oh, back to the hospital Friday night. Right after the surgeon left, I still had to wait a bit until Archer came out of anesthesiology before I could see him. When I got to him bedside, we were waiting quietly in a bay to be wheeled back to Shepherd. I noticed there was blood on his shoulder under his gown. I peeled back the gown and 
Oh, my! There was a whole lot of bright, new, red blood. A pool of it. I learned after a flurry of folks cleaning and a couple docks coming by, racing by, to check it out, that it was from his trach, which was probably moved around during the surgery. Whew. Well, as we waited to get across the border, I heard over the PA system at the hospital a woman in a southern accent, This ten hours are almost over. You have 15 minutes to say goodnight to your loved ones. They need rest to heal now. I smiled. How about that for a message to move folks along? 15 minutes later, over the PA system, came the same voice. It's 9 p.m. and visiting hours are now over. Thank you for visiting your loved ones. Please come back and visit them tomorrow. Good night. I just love that message. And that older woman, she had such kindness in her voice. It was not a recording. I think it would be great if all hospitals had such a kind message every evening. In the morning, I told Archer I needed to go and pick up one of my sisters who was coming in from Chicago to help with the weekend. So good of her. Lillian Phipps Johnston from Chicago was our first family visitor at the Shepherd Center, my youngest sister. I was so thankful for her presence. Here is an excerpt of an interview I had with her years later. We were talking about a time when she was in the hospital on bed rest in a complicated pregnancy, and what we both learned about the power of framing the perception of the person in the bed in the eyes of hospital staff. You'll also hear a bit about her visit to Shepherd and her feelings about the difference between the Shepherd Center and Atlanticare. I remember you and I had talked about when I when I was in the hospital with Dorothy, the difference that, and I don't mean to say I wasn't getting good care before it. My care was excellent the entire time. When, when you were in the hospital, hospital with Dorothy, when with the pregnancy, that was right. Yeah, difficult. Mm -hmm. The high risk, and I was on bed rest for two and a half months, and excellent care. But there was a difference when Ben would come in and start hanging things up on the walls, and they were notes from my students, pictures that they had made, pictures of the girls, uh, Mabel and Alice with me. When all these things went up on the walls, there was a definite difference when people walked in the room. You could just see a difference in their facial expression. Like, like they, they saw you differently. Like, oh, you're a mother of these other two beautiful right. girls. Oh, you're a teacher. Oh, you're a people teacher. love you. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, and then a conversation. Right, right. Started. People love you. Imagine. <laughs> Yeah, but really it, true. It, it made a difference because then I became a person with not that I wasn't a person before. I'm not saying that anything was bad before, but what I just mean is that they just saw me differently. And then the, the care changed, you know, the ICU, like the, the clinical, you know, hospital setting, um, you know, uh, jarring and alarming 
Although if I had to do it now, may, I think I feel like I'm a lot more comfortable with hospitals now. But it, anyway, at the time, it just was, you know, very scary. So that is very that, foreign that, to all of us. We had never, right. as a family, had an experience of a family member in a hospital or ever in an ICU. So it was very foreign. Right. So in that in that way, it was similar. But Atlanta Care, I felt uh, more like. I, when I was there and I was there such a short time, but I just sort of felt like I was walking on eggshells a little bit. Like I didn't want to do the wrong thing. I didn't want to make anybody mad. Whereas I just had this more of a sense of um, like, it was more uh, like uh, comforting or welcoming. Shepard was a little more, I didn't feel as uptight. <laughs> yeah. There, there weren't, weren't as many rules and regulations and, and visitors and people coming in were, were very welcomed. Whereas in the uh, Atlantic care situation, it was, they wished that we hadn't had visitors and had to limit the visitors and uh, tried to cut right. off the visitors and so forth. So that. Which I imagine probably most ICUs are probably like that mm -hmm. for protocol and the safety of, of the patients. You know, like when I was in the hospital, before Dorothy was born and how initially they weren't going to let Mabel and Alice visit because of quote unquote germs, you know, that probably is very common and probably they're the people who work there are used to it, but then they're, you know, when you're new and you're not used to it, it seems like very cruel. Yes. It seems like an affront. I, I, I remember again, I, I totally get and have compassion for hospital uh, rules and administrations for the reasons that, that you just mentioned on safety or on um, other or, or protocols, you know, built around um, their ability to have greater ease and control. But I do think that that doesn't necessarily tr trump um, or become more important than what it is that a person in an ICU really needs, which is support, community support, friends right. and family or love around them. So I told Archer I was going to pick up Lillian. It was kind of weird what happened. I left Shepherd really, for the first time, other than the few blocks to attend Mass. I needed to GPS how to get to the Atlanta airport. I noticed as I left Shepard to go to the airport, just how tentative and cautious I was. I was driving somewhere for the first time since arriving, really. I mean, I'm used to driving in cities for the first time in many places around the United States and the world. I have, and I've loved it. But here, in this moment and time, it was so different. It was like my body was on hyper alert so that when someone moved in front of me in a lane, I twinged. I was so sensitive and fragile, really. It was kind of weird. I thought of old people or anyone who has been shut in for a while and how the transition 
to movement really needs to be gradual. No quick or loud movements. Well, I was passing all these beautiful looking restaurants. But I was noticing how my usual desire to explore was really curbed. And my love of driving and my let's go, figure it out, see the new place was totally dulled. And I was just observing that. I think that's interesting. I also realized it was day 39 and that after Archer's surgery the night before, I realized I needed to get a really good night's sleep. I looked forward to seeing if I could carve out seven hours because I was really tired and I could feel that kind of dog tired to the bone feeling. But as I drove along, getting on the byways and highways of this new city for us, I saw road signs for Gladys Knight Highway. <laughs> Our family loves the Motown sound and the Jimmy Carter Library. We've always admired his work in international peace relations. I felt I was awakened to the potential of Atlanta for us and what a wonderful place it probably is. But the rest of the day back at Shepherd was rest for Archer. He was really conserving every ounce he had, saving energy for the suctionings. He was in great pain. He was not interested in food or drink all day. I am grateful for the peg feeding tube in his belly. My sister, an Atlanta friend and I, busied ourselves getting Archer's new room for the next few months put together so that it is fabulous and lively with the colorful pennants from Archer's grade school cathedral families dancing across the tops of the walls of the room, the nature posters from a Cape May friend, a Baltimore Orioles flag, and a Maryland flag, and all the Archer Strong posters from McDonough and Friends, plus the orchid plant, lavender and peppermint essential oils, and a new CD player to play some wonderful meditation CDs Archer has been sent and enjoys. We thought he might move finally to his rehab room, but no go. We remain in the ICU. Patience. He is very weak, as you know, but your prayers will strengthen him. I told Archer at 5 p.m. that a mass was being said for him in Baltimore at the Cathedral of Mary Our Queen. He could barely open his eyes, but he nodded. I want to pause here and share with you something I found compelling that Lillian reminded me of during our interview as we looked back on the day we decorated Archer's new hospital room, hoping to keep his spirits lifted. There was another reason for scotch taping 
all those posters and photos and messages to the walls of that room. Here is an excerpt. But I wanted them to see Archer, just like that nursing staff and medical staff saw you. <laughs> you know, someone who's really, really loved. Lots of friends and family. And, and then all the things that he did. Student and athlete and musician. Loved music so much. And then all of his art. Art, yes, definitely. The room was definitely filled with a lot of, of artwork and treasures from yeah. people. Yeah, Lillian, you helped to create that that healing sanctuary that I didn't think at the beginning, but we began to realize had two functions, one to cheer up Archer, but the other so that the staff would really know who that person is in the bed. We needed everything and anything for Archer, who seemed so strong, but also was just hanging by a thread. I was also aware I myself was feeling untethered too, feeling off my game in my body. I missed my own care team back in Baltimore, people I had carefully assembled around me over the years to make sure the work I did as a mediator, working with other people's conflicts, was not adversely impacting me. And my care team had raised my awareness of my own early trauma of the loss of my dad. It was this day in the Archer story, the first Sunday that I thought I could go to Mass, that I felt really off because I really didn't want to leave Archer's side at all. I also knew I needed to take care of myself. I sent a number of texts out to my Atlanta friends asking whom they could refer to me so that maybe I could create a care team in Atlanta. I don't know if you have a care team or have thought about having a care team, but I recommend it for every busy mom. My go-to was my daily ritual of going to 8.15 a.m. Mass I'd gotten into the habit after I dropped the children off at school in the mornings when they were much younger. I could go straight to Mass and even had 15 minutes to meditate and do breath work. And this practice had carried me ever since, hmm, ever since Pete was in sixth grade. So I guess at the time it had been about 10 years or so. Well, I missed daily Mass. I also missed my monthly visits to people whose wisdom of the body I valued and who helped me keep my body feeling fresh and alive. I didn't have a personal trainer or anything like that or a workout routine, but I did have a hand-selected team of amazing practitioners, including a massage therapist who knew cranial sacral release, a nutritionist who knew muscle response testing that allowed my body to choose the supplements I needed, my Enneagram missing middle group who first introduced me to somatic awareness of my body, and two therapist professional friends who were always available for me for sessions as needed. 
I also had a spiritual director whom I would consult every few months. And I even considered my hairstylist to be a member of my care team. I knew these women cared a lot about me. And I cared a lot about them. I needed their wisdom in my life. I yearned to create a similar team in Atlanta, but it seemed I was striking out with any options as no one seemed to know anyone who did what I was asking for. But what then happened were the arrival of prayer cards, a number of them. They began to arrive or they were dropped off for us in the ICU. There was a prayer group at a Catholic church down the street where I could go to Mass, and they told me there was daily Mass. I planned to go, and I was also hopeful that I would be able to work while I was at Shepherd. And I thought that maybe I could attend daily Mass and work in the condominium while Archer rehabbed, if we could just get to rehab. There was another handwritten card from a women's prayer group at Northside Baptist Church, who said they were praying for Archer. And it was comforting to me beyond words to know that. The handwritten card read that they read my daily posts and knew I was asking for prayers. I was, and they responded. It was amazing. These people were strangers to me. I felt surrounded by love in Atlanta back to that night at Shepherd, I was also receiving texts about a beautiful mass that was specially held at our church back in Baltimore for Archer. I remember gasping when I saw the photo that one of Archer's friends had emailed me. It took my breath away to see our huge cavernous granite cathedral packed with young people and old people and ages in between, all assembled and gathered to pray for Archer. This is what I wrote to my family and friends. We later heard the number of people there was stunning and how very beautiful it was with the McDonough Choir. I know your hearts were uplifted because by the end of the night, Archer was getting a bit better. Thank you to all who attended. It's this crazy roller coaster ride I am actually getting used to, but never used to, if you know what I mean. There are these really low days of physical weakness and endurance on a thread followed by an amazing day or a moment, and then it's back to intense pain. A few bland days of mediocrity would be nice. The memories of the amazing days can carry us through. Remember how I was telling you about how amazing Thursday was for Archer with all the various PT, OT, swallow tea and food and it really felt like he had turned the corner and all the doctors and specialists were noting it the day was so spectacular that archer increased 
his 5.5 hours on the motorized wheelchair, not moving yet in the chair, but practicing being upright with sip and puff weight shifts every 30 minutes. His determination is clear. He learned that when he moved across the hall, when that happens, to the adolescent rehab floor in a room now decorated that has been waiting for him for over a week, that all the kids are upright in their motorized or regular wheelchairs 10 to 14 hours a day. So I know he wanted to get ready. I know, Archer. But there was another factor that happened that day in the early afternoon. A young man, in his 30s, I'd say, from one of the nearby Catholic churches, came by to visit, to say hello. He asked me if Archer would like to have communion. <laughs> I began, oh no, I, I wish he could. He's on a feed. Wait! Yes! Yes, he can! How perfect is that? The very day Archer was able to eat for the very first time in over a month, a volunteer arrived with communion. And as it turns out, it was a very beautiful moment, surely one that contributed to Archer's strength he felt the rest of the day into the night. Our kind visitor brought out his missalette prayer book and began with the sign of the cross and a long prayer. I realized it was going to be a bit formal. It's not how I have done it when I have delivered communion to people who are ill, but I liked it, probably the way I should have done it, but did not. He was so earnest. I will learn from him. He read a prayer from the little missalette book and proceeded to invite us to state any intentions we had for God, which we could state aloud or privately in our hearts, he said. Archer closed his eyes. I did as well. After a few moments of silence, I opened my eyes, really to see if Archer wanted to go first about stating his intention. My personal intention was, please, Lord, allow me to be open to your will and to do what I need to do to help Archer and you to do your work. Archer still had his eyes closed, so I closed mine again. I waited a few more seconds and then opened my eyes. Archer's eyes were still closed and he had a look on his face as if in deep thought or really more like he was listening deeply. I studied him a moment and then I felt almost self-conscious it seemed very private, Archer's privacy. So this time, 
I closed my eyes, just waited a really long time. I don't know how long, but a long time. It was peaceful, but also pregnant as I waited for Archer to click to me when he had finished and had opened his eyes. He did not. I kept my eyes closed. My focus had shifted to not wanting to get in the way of whatever it was Archer and God were talking about. I really wish I could have just disappeared. All the while, this kind, thin young man held the space. I finally opened my eyes, and while Archer's eyes were still closed, I just waited now with my eyes open on soft. I noticed how beautiful Archer was when he slowly opened his eyes, he slowly glanced at me tenderly and then turned slightly to look right at the Eucharistic minister. And then Archer nodded. He was ready. It was such a beautiful moment. I saw as if for the first time, Archer's deep spiritual capacity. Having that kind of a conversation in silence with such purpose and focus with our Lord. I wonder what Archer's petition was. Well, I don't need to know. God knows. And that's all that matters. It seemed as though Archer was listening very intently. I am marveling how in all the hustle and bustle of that busy and exciting day of physical milestones, Archer was deep in prayer. Saturday night, with the carryover of the difficulties of the day, Lillian asked if she could stay with Archer. He consented so long as she'd hear and come to his clicking. <laughs> oh, he tested her out, I'll have you know. And she was there. I drove off campus to rest. I lay in bed and began to look at emails, which I'm now trying to look at each night if I can. Hopefully, in another week, I will have a rhythm. Everything remains so topsy-turvy with Archer still in ICU. It's hard to believe it's been 11 more days in ICU. I opened my email to two pictures that had been sent to me. I love pictures of Archer. He does too. But somehow, this picture taken maybe six years ago when Archer was probably 11 and he was with Dutch and his friend in their Ravens 
football jerseys at a game. Archer, with a purple bandana around his forehead, his blonde hair a bit shaggy, and his face and skin very sun-kissed. So I know it must have been an August preseason game. And we must have come in straight from the beach in Cape May. The photo of him looked very Archer-like. Free, kind, and creative. My eyes were drawn to his sweet arms and hands, his big hands, and I just felt the rush again of the tears. This time, really, really hard and really, really sad. I really felt blue. I know, I know, I'm just tired. I believe in a creative miracle because I have to. I feel at times I might die of a heartbreak if I don't. When I'm with Archer in his presence, I feel strong. But when I leave our little cocoon and look outward, I'm more vulnerable. It's odd. I know it will pass. I know it's momentary. I know I have amazing people to talk with and work things through. I know it's normal. I also know it's just the way it is for now. I want to embrace it as it unfolds and not let it define who I am. I'm seeking the discernment between the two. There are just so many paradoxes. Everything has two sides. Progress and fatigue. Hope and delusion. Believing and reality. Awareness and suspicion. Alertness and exhaustion. Strength and weakness. So the Holy Spirit can do its work. So many paradoxes. This is complex stuff. I looked at those photos and honestly couldn't sleep. And more honestly, I really didn't want to. I wanted to be with Archer. I wanted to show Archer the photo of the amazing Archer Mass at the cathedral. So I drove back. I'd never come into the garage at Shepherd so late at night. There was a sign placard that read the garage was closed, but I inched forward and a security guard came out and she said, I'm sorry, ma'am. This and ours are over. I said, oh, but I'm not a visitor. My son is here. And she said, Yes, I think I saw you earlier. You spending the night with him? I said, yes. Oh, well then, she said. You just come right on in. As she got out and moved the large, tented placard out of the entrance, allowing me to drive into the garage. Thank you, I said. I felt this huge urge 
to show her the absolutely amazing picture of the Archer Mass at the cathedral. May I show you something? I said as I held up my phone with my picture and showed her. And she said, wow, the cathedral, after all, is very massive and an impressive structure and very gorgeous when filled with people. And she then said, all those people? I said, yes, all those people. They're so good, aren't they, to have come together like that? And she again said, so many. And I said, yes, so many. And all praying together. It's wonderful, isn't it? And she said, you know, my mother taught me all about God and such. You know, but I'm telling you, it was when I had my child. Oh, Lord, I came to know God. I mean, God and I really know each other. I just give it all over to him. And all that I have here, my job and all, I mean, it's good. It's all real good and all. But if you took it all away, I'd still have God. And that's all I need. I was really moved by this. Without a tragedy, she already had the secret figured out. Then she said to me with a grin, are we gonna be seeing a lot of each other? And I said, I'm afraid so. And she said, don't be afraid. You're at the best facility in the world. Well, I don't know it personally because I've never been up there, but I do know they'll take real good care of your boy. They take care of all of us. I was really struck by that. They take care of all of us. The shepherd, the night watchman, watch woman in the garage with such love and respect for her employer. I brightened and asked her her name and told her mine. And she said, with all those people praying for your son, something good is gonna happen. And I said, yes, 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 I believe that. And she said, I'll remember you. And I said, I'll remember you too. And she smiled and stated very matter-of-factly, we are friends now. Yes, I guess we are. Something good is going to happen. It already is. Friendship. Friendships. They really come in so many varieties. Isn't it true? We have some friendships that were sealed in the instant we met each other. Those easy, spontaneous, open smiles where you have that immediate connection and other friendships that were over a really meaningful conversation that seemed maybe like an hour 
but they're really all night long conversations like we would have with childhood friends at slumber parties or that we have over long lingering lunches with girlfriends into the late afternoon or with colleagues or long transcontinental flights so that when you finish, the sun comes up and your relationship is cemented for life whether you remember the details or not of everything you talked about for hours nonstop. Then there are those friendships that are circumstantial and which go dormant, but they were wonderful. And then there are those that were deep and just drifted apart with our lives being lived in different places, in different time zones, with different people. But when we reconnect, we pick up right where we left off, as if no time has passed. Right? Friendship. They really are on heart time, because the only thing that matters is how much we love each other. It seems to me that what makes the friendship forever is that emotional connection of love and safety. You know how you just know a friend and they know you because you love each other and you never want any harm to come to them and vice versa. Like what I am experiencing from so many of you. And that is what I told Archer. I got into his room and I told him he will have many friends in his life. New friends as well as old friends. And even if the old friends lose track of you or lose track of them as you move in different directions, the love from Friendship Archer, even those you may not be so close with but who are still in the larger friendship circle, will all show up for you along the way, now and later in life when you need them the most. Friendships are elastic like that because love is elastic like that. We are all so connected. Well, I'm going to tell you good night, but I just thought of something else I want to tell you. Okay, briefly, but it's kind of big. Billy texted me a screenshot of a letter he and I received in Baltimore. It's a very formal, simple, but elegant, hand-numbered letter. It's from the personal representative to His Holiness. I'm not kidding. It's hard to believe, but it's true. A letter from the Cardinal who serves as the personal representative of Pope Francis. A letter from Pope Francis is so beautiful and very personal about Archer. I wonder still which angels whispered to the Vatican. I don't know whoever you are, but thank you. Our beloved Pope Francis wrote about hearing of all the prayers for Archer. It's all of you, dear ones, collectively in solidarity. 
for Archer, for each other, for we are all so in this together. The Pope wrote to allow God's will to be done. Archer is open and willing for God's will to be done, but it cannot be done without you. We believe there will be a creative miracle. We just don't know what it will look like. We will wait. We will be patient. Please, pray for my capacity and all of our capacity together to be patient daily, perhaps for many years, perhaps for a lifetime, and to never give up hope and to feel the joy in our hearts about that hope and about the kind of friendship that is rooted in love and safety. And listen to the timber of your voice and give thanks. Please pray to the Blessed Mother. Billy arrives in the morning. It will be a good day. Amen. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Blink of an Eye story. You may continue listening next Wednesday to the trauma healing learning that accompanies this story at Trauma Healing Learning 7. Healing Trauma Through Acupuncture with Dr. Janice Campbell. Thank you for listening, and thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Blink of an Eye Podcast is sponsored by I See That, the integrative center for trauma healing, advocacy, and transformation. A nonprofit created as a national resource to help change the way we respond to spinal cord injury, to include trauma healing approaches for families and medical teams across the U.S. I See That provides a national team of SCI specialized doctors for expert opinions in the first hours of crisis, a multidisciplinary family support and navigation team for SCI families led by SCI families for the first 30 days of crisis, and a national resource library of trauma-informed responses for the first hours and days after injury, specialized for families, friends, and SCI medical staff. I See That also offers a registry of medically unexpected SCI recoveries. I See That will host the inaugural conference, The Science of Trauma, Hope for Trauma Healing, October 5th, 2022. To donate and find out more, visit www.icthat.org. That's I, the letter C, T-H-A-T, dot org.